together. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I'm sure that you do, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tonight. We're going to do the unthinkable. We're actually going to cover two chapters in one. Usually we cover two verses. Uh, sometimes it feels like we're covering single or verses at a time. But tonight we're going to look at two chapters, and I'll explain why we're going to do this um, uh, tonight. And, and I don't think it'll be too much uh, at all. Um, it's been a few weeks since we've been in 2 Corinthians, but I hope the subject matter at hand has stayed with you. The overall theme of this book is what we've titled this series, In Christ, uh, because we've learned that 2 Corinthians is really about uh, taking each of us by the hand as believers and showing us what a deeper and closer walk with Jesus looks like. So the Bible uses this phrase throughout the New Testament. 2 Corinthians is, is just one of the examples, but it's really a, a powerful example, maybe the best example. The Bible uses this phrase, in Christ. So as a believer, you are in Christ, as you are seated in him, and you are rooted and grounded in him, and he lives in you. He is uh, desiring to live through you and to make a difference in your life. So we've learned about what that means and what it looks like. Uh, taking hold of a dynamic relationship with him, becoming part of his earthly ministry, an extension of his earthly ministry. The Bible calls us, or 2 Corinthians calls us, uh, ministers for him, ambassadors of his. Uh, so we are really going to get into what it looks like over the next couple of weeks, um, some of the practical ways of what it means to be rooted and grounded in Christ. So chapter 7 left us with a message about repentance, uh, how repentance is, is such a key uh, factor in us becoming uh, who we are to be in Christ. Repentance is about being sorry for our sin and being truly transformed, truly changed by the power of God. So we're going to attempt to cover chapters 8 and 9, not because they don't warrant a study on their own, but really because these chapters are really uh, saying the same thing. Um, and they really, Paul really writes in circles. Not, I'm not saying that in a bad way. He just kind of repeats himself and he talks about something in chapter 8 and then he talks about it again in chapter 9. So we're going to be looking at some verses from 8, then back at 9, and then back and forth because he kind of talks in a loop, uh, which is, is, is strategic because this message is so important, but it's also... I think maybe the word would be it's also kind of jarring. It's also a little bit provocative as in it, it kind of gets our attention and we might at first think, I don't know about this. But Paul is so delicate in the way he presents this topic and he's so careful in the way he presents it that he kind of talks in circles. He kind of repeats himself and he explains it a little bit, repeats himself. So I think we'll see why these two chapters are, are really a, a pair tonight. So as much as it might benefit us to hear this same message two weeks in a row, <laughs> I'm not that brave. Uh, I think we need to, to, to hear it tonight and, and try to get it into a package, um, a package deal. So to get us in the right frame of mind, I want you to look, I want you to remember or recall, you don't have to turn back, but remember a couple weeks ago, we did a, we did a message on chapter 5, verse 21, and chapter 6, verse 1, and, and they're uh, probably just a page back from where you're at. Um, I, I want to repeat these verses because this kind of sets the tone for what the rest of the book is about. Paul says this about what it means to be in Christ. For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we then as workers together with him and in him plead with you. So this is Paul talking to every other Christian. Plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So we did, we did a, whole couple, a whole message about what it means to, uh, to receive the righteousness of Jesus 
as he has taken our sin, removed our sin from us, and we've received his righteousness. So there's this, this great exchange. Um, and it undeniably leads to a transformation in every believer. Uh, and I want to briefly touch on that transformation. Every true believer receives something from Jesus. And it's not just a ticket from heaven, to ticket to heaven. By all means, you get to go to heaven when you die. That's a big deal. That's the main deal. Uh, but, but as big of a deal and as important to think about, because we don't go to heaven immediately when we get saved, uh, maybe some do if, if that's God's will, but most of us, we stay a while, don't we? We stay around on earth for maybe dozens, decades of years, right? For, for most of our life, even if you were saved as a young child and you've been living for, for a long time. Every true believer receives something from Jesus. Not just your name on a roll, which is, of course, important, but you receive a transformation on earth. So when John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but receive everlasting life. So John 3.16 tells us that when we get saved, we receive something from Jesus. And we've learned that everlasting or eternal life isn't just endless life. It's not just life that doesn't expire, but it's full life. Jesus said in John 5, 24, that when you are saved, you pass from death to life right now, in the moment, in the here and now on earth. So when you become a Christian, you step into full, eternal, abundant life. So that means you're transformed. That means you are changed. That means you're a different person than you were before. So the reason Paul is imploring us not to receive the grace of God in vain is because that, that is what salvation means. To receive the gift of righteousness, to receive the grace of God, is to step into new and full life. He says in Romans 5 verse 17, For because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, reign in life. And, and what reign means is make the most of. Uh, live it to the fullest. Reign in life, as in revel in all that you have been given access to. And, and y'all have heard plenty of sermons on what it means to be empowered by the, by the, by the new life of salvation. We've covered it hundreds of times about walking in the fullness of life, being raised up by the same spirit that resurrected Jesus. And, and you can go and read Romans 5 through Romans 8, and you can have a whole crash course on that. You can read um, most of the New Testament letters that Paul wrote about what it means to be uh, given this new life. The short version from 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, is that we have received righteousness, we've received God's grace, and grace is like sin, in that sin makes us do the wrong things, God's grace makes us do the right things. Does that make sense? Adam's sin makes us sin. Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' grace makes us live new and better and full lives. So Paul doesn't go into the practical details about what it looks like to live out, uh, to do all the practical details about what it means to live by grace and live out grace. He spends a chapter talking about how the church ought to be, uh, to hold every professing believer accountable. Remember we did a message on how we, we, sh we our judgment is often focused on the world. It, it should be focused on the church because we should be holding each other accountable because we're the ones who should be living according to the standard of this book. 
And that's why he did a chapter on repentance, because many of us still need to repent. We always need to be repenting, uh, looking at our hearts and seeing if something's not as it should be and bringing it to Jesus and, and getting over it and overcoming it and being changed from it. So this opens up to this last half of the book where Paul doesn't cover every possible way that a Christian ought to live. Some of the books that he writes, he goes through every possible scenario. Ephesians, Galatians, he does that. But not in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, he's going to talk about a few specific things relevant to the Corinthians, especially a few specific things that the grace of God should cause us to, to receive and should be making a difference through our lives or making us think about with our lives. Um, he essentially is going to cover three topics for the rest of this book. Eight and nine is one topic, ten is another, and then eleven through the end is a third. And those three topics are the grace of God brings out radical generosity, spiritual boldness, and an earnest, sincere endurance. Now, naturally, we're going to talk about the first one tonight, and that is the subject of chapter 8 and 9. Now, let me say this. These two chapters are the chapters. If you, if you hear some things tonight that you've heard me talk about a lot, it's because these two chapters are the chapters that every Christian ought to refer to and have bookmarked whenever the subject of giving comes up. Now, I know that everybody has a different opinion about what it means to, be, to give the way the Bible says to give and to give as you should give. Opinions are one thing, but truth is another. And hearing things as through the years and piecing together things through the years is good, but hearing it from the source is best, right? And, and, and I, as a preacher, um, have made these two chapters my North Star. As in these two chapters are, the filter by, are, are what filters every other passage in principle from the Bible on the matter of giving. I say that because Paul is so definitive here. You may not think of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as the two chapters you look at when you want to talk about giving or tell somebody about giving, what's the Bible say about giving and, 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 and tithing or offering. But I will argue that Paul's thesis is so rock solid and he lays it out so clearly that these two chapters ascend to the very top of the list of passages whenever this issue arises. I gotta warn you though, or prep you for, and I don't, this isn't gonna be difficult for anybody here tonight to hear. It might challenge you, it should challenge all of us. It definitely challenges me as a preacher. It's gonna challenge us. It's gonna, I'm gonna say some things that you're gonna think aren't right, but it doesn't conflict with what you believe. It just may not be coming at you the way you've maybe heard it or it yourself. And I'm not trying to challenge the way you think or the way you read the Bible. I'm just trying to show you what these chapters say and filter everything else through that. Uh, regardless of if you filter the rest of it through these chapters, these chapters are so important and, and I want to hear them for what they say. But I, I got to warn you, Paul's message in these two chapters may seem a bit excessive. That you might hear some of the things that I say tonight and I'm only saying what I've read in the Bible, so don't, 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 don't point at me. Some of the things that we talk about tonight may seem excessive, as in, you know, I believe in it, but I don't know if I believe that much in it. Or I, I think that that's true, but I think that maybe the bar is a little bit lower than that. And, and, and we can disagree on that. I'm just going to present what I believe the Word says. You may think, and I, I guarantee you people that have heard Paul say this through the years, think to themselves, maybe Paul's overstepping his bounds a little bit. 
You know, I mean, Paul is, is an inspired man, but is, is, is he is, you know, compared to what God may have said, you know, straight revelation of the Old Testament, is this as important? Is it, that, is it as, you know, definitive? I'd argue it is the definitive message on this subject. So Paul is very bold. A boldness coupled with graciousness, and he's very nuanced. He's very careful in what he says and what he doesn't say in order to properly and effectively communicate his message. So Paul basically asked the Corinthians, let me just give you the summary. Paul is going to basically ask the Corinthians to open up their wallets and open up their pocketbooks or open up their bank accounts. He's going to ask them to give, 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 and give, and he does not do it modestly. You may like this message. You may not like this message. You may think it doesn't have a place. And I don't know. I don't know what you might think. Paul, this is what he's going to say. Paul's going to basically ask them to open up and don't stop pouring out. But let me say a few things. This message is not. This chapter. These chapters is not a chapter, or these are not chapters about tithing. Paul never uses the word tithing in the chapters. And it's not because he doesn't believe in it. It's not because I don't believe in it. It's not because the Bible doesn't proclaim that it's important. Paul never uses the word tithing because Paul thinks, well, y'all should already be there. So Paul's not saying that you shouldn't tithe. Paul's just going to come out and say, well, you ought to already be there. And, And maybe you aren't, right? Plenty of people who heard Paul preach this weren't there. Paul would rather start them off in the deep end than give them the baby steps and hold their hands and put them in a floater, a floating device first. And you may think, well, I think you need to take them through the, you know, all the steps. That might be your opinion. Paul would rather go ahead and throw you in the deep. He doesn't start you off with the elementary things. Paul thinks, and I think, tithing should be the given. It should be a given for every believer. So before anybody here mishears me, these chapters don't undo anything the Old Testament teaches about tithing, but they basically say if tithing is all you think about when it comes to giving, you're still in training wheels. You're still under the schoolmaster of religion. And I'm sure a lot of people come into this chapter, they've never embraced the call to tithe. And, and, and you know, that's not to be judgmental, that's just, they just haven't, and, and you should. If you haven't, you should. Uh, but this chapter says, hey, If you haven't done that yet, we're going to go ahead and put you out into the deepest of ends. And if you have already embraced tithing, and you should, that we're going to take you off the training wheels. And maybe you think, well, I don't think there's anything past that. This chapter is going to definitely challenge that. But this chapter is why I, as a pastor, don't preach tithing as my North Star. As in, I don't preach tithing as the end game. Because the New Testament aims higher and calls us much farther than that. And again, don't mishear me. I've been tithing. I'm not saying this to brag. By the grace of God, I'm here. And I am what I am, and I've done what I've done. I have been tithing since I was seven years old. Really. Um, I'd make $20 or $30 on Saturdays, and Dad would make sure he gave me at least five ones because he made sure I knew that, those, that, that part of that money was to be given to the church. So I've been tithing since as early as I've, been, I've ever made any money. So I've been tithing all my life as a Christian preacher. I cannot in good conscience, though, tell you that tithing is enough because it's not. It's not. This chapter is written calling all believers to step into the fullness of God's blessing, which is available exclusively to generous givers. And and here's the thing. Again, 
just this is me communicating God's word, so you might think this is a little bit mean. Tithing isn't generosity. Tithing is the baseline. Tithing is the starting line. Generosity goes beyond that. I understand that any message on finances hits people dozens of different ways, but it's that this is God's word as much as any other passage, and Paul is as bold as ever in his teaching. And he's not just talking about generosity with money. Now, uh, uh, let me be clear. He's talking about money, but generosity isn't only contained to money. You can be generous with your time, with your resources. You should be generous with your time, your resources, your talents. But this, this chapter is definitely about money. So don't let, you know, some people will say, well, it's not all about money. This chapter is about money. Now, are there ways to be generous with your time, your talents, your resources, etc.? Yes. Should you do that? Yes. But this chapter is about money. So I got to say something else. You might not like this. This chapter is not a chapter about giving money in order to get more money. That's not the message. Now that, that might be hard for some people to hear because a lot of times we've been raised, I was raised, to think the only reason you give is because you want to get back. Now that sounds kind of bad when you say it out loud, doesn't it? Does God promise to outbless every gift? Yes. Is there an Old Testament principle where God says, if you give, I'll give back. Of course. Malachi told the, the Jews who weren't giving that if they gave, God would open up the windows of heaven and give more. But let me just let me put this in perspective. The Jews in the Old Testament, the best they could ever have from God was the sand they were standing on. There was no Holy Spirit. There was no relationship with God by faith through grace. There was no walking in the fullness of life. The only thing the Jews had in the Old Testament was the sand they were standing on and the houses they were living in and the money they had saved up in the bank. Now, you might think, well, that's pretty good. But that is not near as good as what we have spiritually. I know that might not be what you want to hear, but that's the truth, isn't it? The best the Jews had was the land they were standing on. But Christians, the New Testament says, hey, there's better than that. Because guess what happens when you die? when it comes to the sand under your feet in the house over your head. It don't go with you, right? You know what the Jews thought? The Jews thought, and this is what the Old Testament teaches, that the, best, the better person I am, the longer I get to live because they had no concept of heaven. You don't read in the Old Testament about people thinking about going to heaven when they die. The, the promise was live as long as you can in the land because that was all there was to them. Now, we know there was a heaven when they died, but they don't talk about it because they didn't know what it was. And that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis was live as long as you could, be as blessed as you could. But guess what happens once for everybody? You die. That's why Solomon in Ecclesiastes made that profound statement. You live all this, you live this life and you store all this up and then you die and somebody else gets it. There's got to be more, Solomon thought. And there is more. That's why Jesus never used material things as the carrot on the stick, like the Old Testament does. Jesus talks about laying up treasure in heaven, doesn't he? Which doesn't jive with a God who only wants to give you treasure on earth. Let me make this very clear. Does God provide for his own? Absolutely. Does he outbless every gift? Yes. 
But Jesus never used that as an incentive or a threat. Think about this. The Old Testament says, if you, if you are a good person, and it, um, this is not what the Old Testament says, but it's what the Old Testament Jews believed. The Old Testament Jews believed, and the people that were living in Jesus' day believed, that if you're a good person, you're going to be a wealthy person. They believed that. If you're a good person, you're a wealthy person, and if you can, as long as you give to God, he's going to give to you. But guess what happened in the days of Jesus that confronted that, and how Jesus confronted that? The rich man and Lazarus. Was Lazarus wealthy? He was impoverished. The only thing he had to eat was the crumbs that fell out of the trash bags that the rich man put out the, on the curb. Right? Jesus doesn't say, oh, look at, the, look at Lazarus. He didn't obey God. He must be cursed. No, Jesus said Lazarus was more wealthy than the rich man ever dreamed of being. Right? Remember the widow with her might? And the rich were just pouring out their money into the, into the pots and the widow just had the little coin, right? Jesus said she's more wealthy than these guys. So what's that tell you? That Jesus confronted that idea that only wealthy people are blessed people, only blessed people are wealthy. Jesus said, hey, that's not, it doesn't mean that you can't have money and be blessed. He just says that's not the only metric. And in fact, Jesus said some crazy stuff like this. Well, this isn't too crazy. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. As in, y'all, I know you're worried about money and worried about physical things, but listen, just seek God. He'll give you what you need. Fear not, little flock. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Which people heard Jesus say that and think, okay, okay. This is just after he told the parable of the rich man that built bigger barns and then woke up in hell. The rich man that said, I've got all this, look at me, and then he died and he had none of it. But Jesus said, don't worry, don't worry. It's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. But then he said something completely off the wall. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in heaven that do not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. So that statement that Jesus said both in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that statement that he repeated over and over and over again, forces us to confront this idea that the only reason I give is to get because this passage tells us that if you really want to get something truly that's blessed from God, you'll give and you'll give and you'll give and you'll give. And you might not get back nothing in this life because you're after something in the next life. Why else would Jesus say, sell everything you've got? People say, oh, he didn't really mean that. I mean, really? I mean, he, he really meant one thing, but he didn't really mean the next thing. I mean, we got to be careful saying what Jesus meant and then saying he didn't mean it in the next, you know. But, but then he said this, for where your treasure is, there, will, there your heart will be also. So what, what's Jesus after? Jesus says, hey, you want to rededicate your heart? Let's redirect your treasure. Easier said than done, right? You want to rededicate your heart to God? Jesus says, let me, let me show you how to redirect your treasure. Because when your treasure goes to God, your heart goes to God. Because just like you worry when the stock market plummets, and just like you worry when the economy's on the, on, the t- on, on the brink, your heart is tethered to where your treasure is, right? So Jesus says, if you want to rededicate your heart, let's re- renegotiate where your treasure is at. So he's trying to get us to evaluate our, our heart from earthly things to eternal things. Some of us have been raised in religious environments where God was just a cosmic slot machine, and we're, we were motivated to give because we were hoping we might get something back. And I'm not being mean about that. It's just how we were raised, and that's how we were trained to think. 
I can't in good conscience preach that, not because I don't believe God's going to take care of you. He is going to, and he will bless you. But I don't know if that's always going to be physical things. I can't look at Santa up here and lie to you and say, well, if you, if you give, you're always going to have more money than you need in the bank, because that's not biblical. But I can confidently say your heart's going to be full and your life is going to be blessed and you will be happy with where you're at. The New Testament imperative is to make sure that our incentives are aligned with God's word. So what is this chapter? What are these chapters about? Christians ought to be the most generous people, radical, excessive, and transformed in their giving. Follow along with me. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1 through 7. Moreover, brethren, we, know, we, have, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, we've never heard of these churches before, but here they are. That in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy in their deep poverty, underline that, in their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality, of their generosity. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, beyond their ability, beyond their power, as in beyond what they should have been giving, they were freely willing, imploring us with more urgency that we would receive the gift in the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that, he, that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. As in, encourage you to be as gracious as they were, letting the grace of God work through you as it did them. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. And what he means by that is, see that you abound in the grace of God making you radically generous. Grace working through you. So what does he tell us? Paul hopes that the Macedonians rub off on the Corinthians. And Paul uses the Macedonians as the model of generosity. They have allowed God's grace to make them the model, the standard that we are all compared to 2,000 years later. Verse 2 tells us, and this, this is so remarkable, that they were deeply impoverished. They were in deep, abundant poverty. They gave beyond their ability because they first gave themselves to the Lord. Follow me on that. Verse 2, they were in deep poverty. Verse 3, they gave beyond their power, beyond their ability, beyond what it made sense to give because they first gave themselves to the Lord. Paul says the Corinthians need to allow this same work of grace to happen in them and through them. Now, verse 8 is tricky because Paul, if I was Paul, I would, I would say, you better do what they did. But look at what Paul says. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Now, man, that is a, that is a nuanced, delicate statement. Paul says, I'm not going to tell you you have to be like them. I'm just going to put their example in front of you. And I'm going to see if you can justify not being like them based on the love you claim to have for Jesus in your heart and based on the profession of faith you have made. Man, it took some confidence for Paul to do that, didn't it? We'll talk about that in a minute, but 
Flip over to chapter 9. We'll, we'll turn back to this in a minute. But chapter 9, I want you, I want you to hear verses 1 through 5. Because he kind of repeats himself. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it's superfluous for me to write to you. For I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians that Acacia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready. So Paul's kind of buttering up. I know y'all are going to be just as generous as the Macedonians. Wink, wink. I know you are, but I gotta, I'm saying this because I don't want to have, I don't want to have believed in vain. Verse 4, lest if some of the Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared. He's talking about them giving money. Not to, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. So, so Paul's kind of, you know, playing both sides. Hey, I know y'all are, y'all are these kind of people, but hey, I don't want to be embarrassed if we come and they're with me. And hey, these people gave to the ministry. And this is just supporting the ministry. It's not a specific thing. It's not a specific ministry that we know of. It's just the overall advancement of the church. Verse 5, therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort this brethren, uh, the brethren to go, go to you ahead of time and to prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity, not a begrudging obligation, man. So here's, here's, here's where Paul's at. He doesn't want them or us to, to do anything out of obligation, but out of generosity and graciousness and cheerfulness because he's afraid that if we do it out of obligation we'll miss the blessing that God has for us now let me say this if it was just if the blessing was just to get back then it would just be a science it would just be a math equation if the blessing is you give and you'll get then there would, it wouldn't matter if you were doing it out of obligation or out of cheerfulness it would just matter hey I put the coin in the machine and it spit something out so that tells me the blessing is not material Right. Now, let me, let me say something. Don't you see what Paul is risking here? Don't you see that he could have said, the Bible says you better do this. They did it, you should do it. Don't you think he could have leveraged his authority and it would have benefited him, it would have benefited everybody to say to these people, you better do this even if you don't feel like it, you need to do it. Right? Maybe that's how you've heard it preached before. And you were scared not to. Plenty of preachers employ that tactic to great success. They promise all sorts of stuff in return. But people, you know, hey, you'll give. If you give, you'll get. But, but, but that's not what Paul does, is it? Again, verse 5. I want you to do this not as a matter of generosity, not as a grudging obligation. Now, now look back at chapter 8, verse 8. He says again, I don't want you to do this out of commandment. No, I mean, couldn't Paul just have said, do this? Well, I mean, clearly he couldn't because God didn't let him say it, right? Paul outright says, I don't want you to do this out of mere duty. I want you to do this for the sake and joy of ministry. You say, Justin, how is anybody's heart ever going to become enthused and cheerful about giving if you tell them they don't have to? They might not ever. I mean, you kind of have to scare them, don't you? Right? Listen, I get that. In my flesh, in my flesh, I'm thinking, you know, you kind of have to put people in a corner and say, you got to do this. You have to. 
Isn't there a verse that says you, you, if you don't or else? I mean, by all means, we've heard it be very clearly stated that as a Christian, you should want to do this. Right? But don't you, don't you understand that the Bible's approach is different? And I got to respect that, and we got to respect that. It doesn't mean what it's telling us is an option. It's not an option at all. It's an obligation. Paul just wants it to be something we do willingly. See what I mean? Now, follow along in chapter 8, 9 through 15. This is his way of trying to get them to open up their hearts. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this I give advice, it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it. As in, hey, you, you, you keep saying you want to do this. He says you, you should do this. That as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion of what you have. Verse 12 is key. For if there is first a willing mind, it is, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what, one, what he does not have. As in, you've got to first have the mindset before you will have the heart to do it. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by inequality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. His hand, Paul said, I just want everybody to be blessed. And I know that you might feel like this expectation over you will burden you financially. Paul said, I don't want that to happen. But I know the blessing is more important than the excuse. Verse 15, as it is written, he who gathered much has left nothing over, and he who gathered little had no lack. So here's what Paul's going to do. He gives them the example of Jesus, and he's going to rely on the Spirit to embed this promise and stir their hearts. This is, the, this is the hardest thing for any preacher to do, to let God be God and take his truth and make a difference in people's hearts. Because if I strong arm you into doing something in a way the Bible says that it shouldn't be done, then not only have I disobeyed God, but you're not going to get the blessing that you could get from God. Christians, this is where we're expected to arrive at. But here's what I know. We're, when a Christian starts weighing all this, and this text is given, to, given its place to do its work, the Holy Spirit's going to start moving in our hearts toward this destination. Paul reminds us of how Jesus emptied himself, became poor, he lived an impoverished life, Spiritually speaking, he emptied himself of power and glory, was disgraced by our sin so that we might be blessed beyond imagination. And verses 11 and 12 tell us that we have to have a willing mind. If we bring that desire to God, he will bring the grace to your heart. Again, he uses nuance. He says, I know many will hear this and say, I can't afford to do this. I can't afford it. I can't afford to tithe, much less give beyond that. This is where we must be confronted with the discomfort so that we might catch a glimpse of the blessing over the horizon. Here's the thing. The Bible's message isn't to get rich and then give more. 
This, this chapter is not saying, hey, once you make some money, make sure you give some of that to God. This chapter is saying, you need to give to God out of your poverty. This chapter is saying, become rich by giving more. And, and when I say become rich, this isn't monetary richness. Become spiritually rich by giving more and more. 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19 says that we are to do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So what's the message? Be rich in generosity. We must all deal with Jesus' message on true riches, eternal riches. We must reconcile how we're investing our lives with what the Bible says is an actual good eternal investment. This will make us squirm and make excuses. I understand. I don't know your financial status. You don't know mine. I have to respect that everybody's got a different situation. But that doesn't change the message, does it? This message will convict somebody who barely gives 5% or barely gives 1%. And this message also convicts somebody that ties but barely goes over or never thinks about going over. Because you know what this message isn't about? This message isn't about giving some and keeping most. This message is about bringing all to God and letting him tell you what to keep. But spoiler alert, if you, if you walk away with more than you give, you might be mishearing him. This message answers the question, how much should I give? And the answer is give until there's nothing left. Because isn't that what Jesus did? Again, I don't, don't raise your hand and say, well, you don't know. What is the message? Jesus gave it all. This, this is not God telling you to not take care of your family. This isn't God telling you not to chase after this dream or that dream. This is God telling you to put him on the top and see how he'll take care of everything beneath him. Will this turn your budget upside down? Maybe. Will this make you question whether you spend your money a certain way or should you spend your money a certain way? Yes. The message is about making us aware that if we're living in a world where we only carve out a portion for God and we cling to the rest and never think about letting go of any, uh, of any of it beyond that, we need to reevaluate how God's grace is working through us. This message is hard to preach because it forces you to put your money where your mouth is. And by God's grace, this is something that I've always prayed for God to keep me honest on. So you know what principle I've lived by for over a decade now? Give, give, give until it hurts. And let me just say this about Americans. That's way more than 10%. Way more. 10% is easy for most Americans. Now for some it's not, you know, I don't know your situation. For some 10% feels like 90, but for some 10% is more like one. Give until it hurts. When I think of what God has done for me and I think of what he can do for others, consider what if I just let go of a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. In closing, chapter 9, verse 6 through 15. This is Paul laying it out there. But I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now that sounds like something we want to hear. So let everyone give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
Again, that tells me that the blessing isn't material. Because if the blessing is material, then it's going to be just, if you give, God's going to give you back. If you put the dollar in the machine, you're going to get a Coke out, right? If you put a dollar in, you get a dollar's worth or more back. The blessing is more than that. Because God is not just looking down thinking, well, hey, they wrote a check. God is looking down, what does their heart say? And this is the promise, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work. God wants to see his grace working, for, working through you so that you become a radically generous person. His grace is flowing through you and through through you abundantly. As it is written, he is dispersed abroad. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruit of, of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality. Listen. Why does God bless you? So that you might be, we don't like the word liberal, but the word is generous, Right? liberal with your money, generous with your money. Why are you enriched? So that you might richly give. Isn't that, the, that's what verse 11 says, right? You are enriched so that you might be liberal or generous with your riches, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So what is the goal? Why does God bless you? So that you might give, 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 give. Verse 12, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. What's the proof of that? Your radical generosity. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound towards you. Verse 11, you are enriched in everything for all generosity. We are blessed that we might be, blessed, be able to bless others. This is a cycle that God starts. So here's my, here's my message to you. Here's God's message to you. This is hard. I would love for the Bible just to say, hey, you give 10%. God's going to take care of you. Don't worry about anything else. That's not what it says, though. And you know what? I'm saying that in jest. I'm glad it doesn't say that. I'm glad the Bible pushes me to the edge. I'm glad the Bible says, hey, Justin, you want to grow spiritually? You want to grow spiritually? Give. Radical. Be radical with your generosity. Give, 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 give. You know what happens? You know what? Listen, I, and I'm not, being, I'm not a better preacher than anybody else. But a lot of people don't know this stuff. A lot of people have never heard this stuff. I didn't hear this stuff until I started reading the Bible for myself, right? And I'm not knocking anybody, right? I don't know what people's motives are. But I just know that a lot of people don't know this. But here's what happens. That now that you know this, you got to do something with it. Chapter 8, verse 12, says if we have a mindset, God will give us the grace to go through with it. Chapter 9, verse 8, says God is able to make all grace abound to us. Don't you think it's remarkable that Paul's message wasn't this? This could have been Paul's message. Hey, these Macedonians, they gave and they got so filthy rich, you should do the same. That's not his message. His message is the Macedonians were in poverty. They gave out of their poverty. They didn't become super rich. 
but spiritually they're off the charts. Corinthians, you should do what they did. That's one of the most remarkable messages in the entire Bible, and it's proved to me the Bible's inspired because you wouldn't make this up. Verse 11 is a verse that we should think about every time we cash a check, every time we balance our checkbooks, every time we look at what we have and what we want to spend and where we want to make it, where we want to spend it on. We have been enriched so that we might be generous. The question is, do we give it all or do we give him some? Do we give him some or do we give him all? Part of us, we don't like that because we've been told our, our lives that God only owns a part of it and we can just keep what we want for ourselves. That's not the Bible. That's not the message. The message is there is a blessing for you as a Christian. And yeah, it involves giving from where it hurts. Yes, it involves reorganizing your finances if you have to. It involves looking at your treasures and thinking, what do I want for eternity? And where is my heart at? And if our heart's on Jesus will change. You won't regret it. I love this verse. We don't ever talk about this. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. You and I know how blessed it is to receive, don't we? I love to receive. Man, I love it. And you know, it's a blessing. I'm, I'm very blessed. I'm very, 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 very blessed. I cannot imagine sometimes looking back and seeing how blessed I am 10, 15, 20 years ago thinking, God, I can't, you're so good to me. I was born into blessings. I was born into a family. I was born into situations that many in the world would never, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, lost on that. But I got to ask the question, how much more blessed is it to give than to receive? I mean, I know how blessed it is to receive. How much more blessed is it to give? You ever thought about that? We know how blessed it is to have it. We'll never know until we give it all away. I preach this to hold myself accountable. But I also preach this because I believe it. I believe it. This is an open-ended message in some ways. But you know what this forces all of us to do? To be spiritually dependent on God and to come to God with our treasure and say, God, you've been so good to me. What should I do with all this? You want to get blessed? Give, 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 give. And if you've been giving like I know many of you, most of you have given all your life, you know what, how important this is. Let's go tell the world how important it is. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your radical generosity towards us. That you gave us everything we could ever ask for through Jesus. And Lord, this message reminds us that we have been blessed so that we might give back. Lord, help us to, to, to be pride loose of this world and to see a bigger kingdom on the horizon. Help us, Lord, to understand the opportunity at hand for all of us to give to something that's going to last forever and to receive blessings far beyond what this world can offer up. Lord, we ask the question, how much more blessed is it, is it to give than to receive? Lord, help us to have the boldness and the courage to put that statement to the test. How much more blessed is it 
We won't ever know until we do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.